welcome to the Hunts Backcountry Podcast. This is episode number 416. And today we're talking about an important topic that's, I don't know, not fun to talk about, right? It's not like a hunting tactic or strategy or story. But if you venture into the backcountry, it's something relevant and worthwhile to learn about. And we're going to talk a bit about first aid and not just say, hey, you need a first aid kit, but really dive into knowledge and assessment of injuries and yes some of what you should carry as well our guest uh, dr jesse mix joins us to share his level of knowledge and experience as a trained physician he both works in a hospital but also trains um, pararescue jumpers pjs uh, which are special operations medical experts in the military Jesse himself has been in the military and also is a hunter. He's a listener of the show, and he reached out to us after hearing some of our previous episodes, including episodes with you guys, listeners of the show, about different experiences of injuries or accidents in the backcountry, and he volunteered to share some helpful tips and perspective on what he thinks you should know as a backcountry hunter. I loved that he reached out and thank him so much for sharing the knowledge and experience with us and uh, tune in today. It's an important episode. Hopefully none of us ever have to deal with a major injury or accident in the backcountry. But as we've heard in previous episodes and with the amount of people who listen to the show, it, you know, unfortunately is likely that someone may have to put some of the knowledge uh, that we discussed today into practice. So You'll hear us reference um, a link in the show description with some resources that Jesse, again, graciously helped us put together in terms of things like recommended suggestions for what you should have in your first aid kit, a quick reference guide to a lot of the material that we discussed today. It's something that you can just open and print and maybe keep in your first aid kit or in your pack with you. So again, we do mention this several times in the conversation, but just want to let you know upfront If you want to learn more, even see some of the material and process it visually as we go through this discussion, you can do all that with the link in the show description to get the quick reference guide, first aid kit suggestions, and more. Right now, though, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Dr. Jesse Mix. Well, Jesse, welcome to the Hunt Backcountry Podcast. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well, thanks. Admittedly, a little nervous for some of you. Don't be nervous, man. Uh, You sent an email, which I'm so glad that you did, uh, and mentioned that you had been listening to the show for a while, uh, that you were a customer of both XO and SNS, which is awesome. Um, And I think the email was kind of sparked by some of the stories or at least one story in particular you know we've told different stories and had different guests on the podcast in the past who have had some sort of like injury in the backcountry or needed some sort of rescue um and we've told a few different stories from that perspective um and then you kind of reached out with uh your offer to kind of share some thoughts on your medical expertise and like what you think would apply to backcountry hunters uh, and I would love to hear about that. So I'm glad that we could make this episode happen. Cause I know that for myself, I'm probably not as, uh, knowledgeable or prepared as I could be or should be. 
but before we get into that, what is some background and context for who you are and kind of what uh, what that background is for you? Yeah, cool. Um, so yeah, my name's Jesse Mix. I um, grew up in Pennsylvania, but which is whitetail country, but I was never really into hunting. I think uh, my family wasn't into it. It's very much a kind of a family-centered activity, at least out there, probably elsewhere as well. So I didn't actually start hunting until uh, three years ago when I moved out to Idaho after I got out of the military. So, um, I'm very much a novice hunter and would really have no real business being on this podcast other than I guess the medical stuff that we'll talk about. So, um, I have gotten a couple deer elk. I managed to snag a bear this year, but otherwise it's like, uh, very much everything I know about hunting basically comes from this podcast and just getting out and just kind of practicing, I suppose. What got you into wanting to hunt? You know, of that's actually backcountry hunters and anglers. Um, well, I'll actually start. One of my military friends who's stationed out here that I knew from way back when was like, hey, man, like, why don't you get your license? I've got an extra rifle. You can just come out and do your uh, 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 get a cow tag and come out with me and we'll try to go for some elk. And so he's not much more. uh he was not much more experienced than I was at the time, which was completely inexperienced, but he just kind of invited me along and I didn't have anything, borrowed some vinyls, borrowed some, uh, his rifle. And we actually both managed to snag a cow at that time. And then, um, awesome. from there, BHA, I kind of got into BHA, uh, backcountry hunters and anglers, and they have a hunter mentorship program, which is actually really awesome. So I don't know, it kind of, I've tried to mm. pass it on a little bit, just in terms of like taking in guys that have never done hunting before and, Otherwise, I have a lot of experience. Like I have tons of experience backpacking and uh, camping and all sorts of things in the backcountry, but not hunting. And so it's just a whole different ballgame, I suppose. Hmm. Uh, a little more about me, I suppose. Uh, I, well, what did I do? I college, I went to medical school. I'm a physician, initially trained in family medicine. And I got into emergency medicine because I was, uh, the Air Force paid for my med school. So I was in the Air Force and I got into emergency medicine and then something called EMS, emergency medical services or pre-hospital medicine, taking, overseeing paramedic level care. Um, through that, I got involved with being a medical director, basically um, that overseeing medical care for paramedics for pararescuemen, which are kind of combat rescue specialists, um, Air Force special operations guys that rescue anything and anyone that the Air Force or the military wants rescued. And they have an incredible range of skills, everything from everything. It's an incredible range of skills. However, one of their skills, just one of their many skills uh, is paramedic. And so my responsibility for the past seven years, um, active duty and now in the guard part-time, is just overseeing their medical training and making sure that they're keeping up on those medical skills, which really are in and of themselves an incredible breadth of knowledge that they have to have. So they're a pretty incredible group and I get to work with them, which is neat. Um, so yeah, I think uh, I, I do also have a fellowship in, uh, what is that? Like kind of additional training in, uh, wilderness medicine and then additionally in emergency medical services. So I practice now, um, emergency med and primary care. And then I also do the guard thing part-time. So that's my day job. Very cool. Do you recall, uh, kind of the context or the story of the episode that you kind of heard and prompted you to, to reach out? 
Yeah, for sure. I've started listening to your podcast maybe a year or two ago. So I haven't heard a lot of the, maybe a year ago. So I haven't heard a lot of the different stories. But the one that I recall was, I think his name is Kurt. It starts with a C. It was like the solo 60-year-old backcountry hunter. Um, and he's a really squared away dude. I really respected him a lot. And he talked about how he was breaking down the elk. And he went into human factors about being kind of fatigued. And maybe his mind was elsewhere. And he cut himself while he was breaking down the elk. And he he went through basically his very well-constructed mental model of how he like immediately thought, this is how I'm going to treat myself. And then kind of his process as he went through that in the very short term. And then over time, what he did to take care of himself. I was like, man, that guy is definitely got a, a squared away mental model of how to take care of an emergency in the backcountry. And, and you were asking a couple of questions, Mark. And I was like, you know, like, that was the first time it ever occurred to me. Like, you know, actually there's, I teach those mental models, you know, uh, and, and have for years and years and years. And it's like, that could be information. It sounds as if that might be information that could be cool in this kind of setting for this, this kind of audience. Awesome. Is that, so you have provided us with like a quick, quick reference guide that's uh as i mentioned the podcast intro we will share all of our listeners can go to and access and you know print as a reference or just kind of supplement this conversation but when you say a mental model is that kind of the acronyms and what's laid out in this quick reference guide or by a mental model do you mean something uh different than that yeah excuse me for a sec um that is that is what i mean the acronym there's an acronym that we'll go through. It's called March pause, two words, M-A-R-C-H, March pause, P-A-W-S. It's just an easy acronym to remember functionally what can save hundred percent of lives on the battlefield from uh, battle injuries. And that's proven in research. And so it feels like a simple model, but in the, um, obviously in the setting of battle or really in the setting of any sort of emergency, you're, brain is firing at a thousand or at least my brain's firing at a thousand miles a minute and it's like it's you can get so kind of like in the red or so like zoned in on one thing that it's hard to keep your brain straight you know and this is an experience we all have in various types of emergencies and so the idea of having this model this acronym called march pause um as just a way to work through every single thing that could be literally every single, almost every single thing that could be life-threatening and how to treat them in that order is really just, I think, an invaluable resource. And I've seen it, honestly, with um, guys in combat that, you know, there's it's crazy situations that I've not been in, but in, re- in debriefing with them, it's like, man, like, bomb just went off, bullets are flying overhead, and you have this acronym and they just keep going back to the acronym. They're literally just walking themselves through March pause as they are treating this guy. That's just, you know, has tons of injuries. And so, so it works in really kind of scary ramped up situations. And it's just a way, like I was talking about, I think his name's Curtis. It's like, he knew what to do and he knew how to work through it. And it's just kind of, I don't think everyone going into the backcountry or really, you know, walking outside has that mental model of what to do if an emergency happens or even what constitutes as an emergency really, you know? So I'm hoping we can kind of help uh, provide that for people 
And that quick reference card is literally a four by six card front and back you can print out and has a lot, and actually some, probably more of this information we'll actually go through today. Um, and it just be a way that you can kind of, you know, even keep it in your pack and have it handy, but you certainly want to learn it ahead of time. You don't want to have to be like, yeah, <laughs> your book, like a nerd is there's like an emergency <laughs> going on, you know, <laughs> for sure. Um, yeah, just for, for listeners, um, I was trying to remember and just looked, uh, which first of all, Jesse, yes, his name is Curtis. So good job remembering. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. Um, Curtis, was such a guy, man. He was, I was impressed with him a lot. It um, was impressive. Uh, that episode was number 392. Just for listeners, if you haven't heard it, it's called Solo Elk Success. It's 60 years old. Uh, and it was fantastic episode for many reasons. One is, you know, I, I, I love speaking with older hunters who are still out and getting after it. Curtis did that. He was solo. He had success. And if that wasn't, you know, great enough of a story to tell, he did have like an unfortunate injury, but then the way that uh, he handled that proceeded to uh, just complete his adventure was just impressive. Yeah. So if, if listeners haven't heard that, go back. It's episode 392. Um, Jesse, like high level, because I, I do want to get to March pause and dive into that. But one thing, and this is going to sound very basic, as I was going over this information, one thing again this is so basic was helpful for me is you have in there like for march in particular for each of those uh letters m a r c h it's assess and then treat and i know this is gonna sound really silly but for someone with no medical experience as you said in situations um say for a backcountry hunter it's not battle but if someone's remote and there's some sort of issue and trauma and potentially some sort of emergency, especially if it's potentially life-threatening, whether that's for themselves or someone that they're with, you're often like just not thinking clearly. And it's, it was just a really helpful reminder for me of like, so many people are going to want to jump to treatment and action. Mm -hmm. But before you do that, you have to like force yourself to pause and just consider the situation and really assess, which I think is one of the things that Curtis did so well and like even vocalized well in his story is, hey, this happened. And before I just jump to, do I need to do this, that, or the other thing, I really need to assess the situation, assess my capabilities, assess what resources I have, assess what the conditions are, assess, of course, the injury and what that may mean for a timeline. Um, so anyway, I know that is extremely basic, but I just found it helpful because I'm, you know, just don't have experience in this area. Yeah. Um, just so people can maybe visualize it if they're not looking at the card or they probably aren't as if they're driving or whatever. The card is kind of set up in the way that we might talk through this is kind of set up in three major categories. There's first kind of like that pre-treatment, what I call like situational awareness, that scene assessment, like you're just talking about. And then the second cat, the second portion of that card, and the, maybe this lecture will be like, or podcast uh, will be March. Um, and then the third part is pause. And so, uh, P-A-W-S, not. Um, so that's kind of how it's lined up. And that's probably how we'll talk through it is just kind of that pre, that what we call in the military situational awareness essay, build your essay, kind of have an understanding of the situation before you just dive in and really like, get the blinders on, you know what I mean? And then mm -hmm. each letter of March 
does have a way to assess each one of those things. Massive bleeding is M. There's a way to assess those things. And then there's a way to treat those things. Cool. And something while we're, while we're there, what I'll say is March addresses each of, each of these life-threatening injuries in order that they should be assessed and treated. Meaning if you are having an issue with M, massive bleeding, that needs to be both found, assessed, and treated before you ever get to A, airway, respiration, and circulation. And the reason is because that's the order in which those things kill you. And that's backed up by research and a lot of military research into like, what are the causes of mortality in the battlefield? And it is those things in that order. So just keep that in mind. Like you're not jumping around. The whole point of the acronym is that you just keep, it's a mental model to keep your brain straight, really. And you just work through it sequentially in that order that it's, that it's in there. So let's dive into it. Situational awareness is, you know, obviously different on the battlefield than a backcountry hunt. But what can we learn about situational awareness for a potential backcountry hunting situation that you would like to highlight? Yeah. Um, actually, can I pause for a second, Mark, and just say for sure. there's, a, there's like, I think, at least medically speaking, we're supposed to give a series of caveats before i get into it can you do that real quick <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of, like these medical things it's like i'm, su- I'm supposed to say and I mean this genuinely but i do want to say this like a couple <laughs> of different caveats first although i am part of the military these view this in this a lot of this material comes from the military this what i am saying does not reflect the views of the military or my employer i don't have any sponsorships or paid financial relationships or anything like that with any of the stuff that's in here um and then a couple other like things. I'm not anyone's personal doctor on this podcast, as far as I know. And so it's like, there's going to be different circumstances for people with specific medical issues that I just can't take into account here. So, you, you know, I can't replace your personal physician, obviously, as far as that goes. And um, in this, there are a lot of things we talked about here where there, you require, it doesn't require it really strongly benefits from hands-on training. So even if we talk about a tourniquet, guys, most guys, I think, have an idea of what a, a tourniquet is and how to put it on. But until you've done that and have done it, you know, 50 or 100 times, you're really not as quick as you need to be to get that tourniquet on when you're uh, bleeding out quickly. You know what I mean? And so there's a lot of hands-on training that this podcast just can't do. But those are all the caveats I wanted to say, just so I get those out there. I'm sorry for that. No problem. I yeah. Litigious culture be damned. Let's proceed. <laughs> <laughs> but I and I'm not. Uh, yeah, there's no uh, financial relationship with any of the products. I already said that. I guess. But yeah, going back to the um, situational awareness, building your essay, quote unquote. Um, these are things that we even for you know paramedics rolling into a scene, civilian paramedics rolling into a scene. Um, you know, in a suburb, they're taught these things as well. So it's not just that um, it's a military thing. Certainly, hopefully there's a lot less going on hectic wise than there would be in battle, but I'll go through some of the things that you should kind of have in mind. First and foremost is scene safety. The idea here is you already have one quote unquote patient. You don't want to make another. So in the back country, that could be, maybe he fell off a cliff and now he's like 20 feet down. And so the Scene safety, part of that is like, well, how do I even get down there safely without, you know, becoming another patient? Or 
is he so close to the ledge that I'm going to like forget and walk myself off the back of it? You know, you were given that example of, or you recently were talking about your spring bear hunt and working on a knife uh, ridge. And it's like, man, it's very easy to lose your place when you're like trying to plan a shot and then fall off the back of something and get, do some serious danger. And a fall is really actually one of the highest risks that a backcountry hunter has, I believe. So some of the other scene safety things, maybe if it was, you know, an accidental um, firearm issue, then maybe that weapon's still loaded or um, cycled through and now it's, uh, you know, still dangerous. So maybe there's a loaded weapon or maybe the, the I don't know, thing you cut yourself on or maybe you uh, got burned by something, but the fire's still not under control. Those kind of things, the things that will cause more injuries if you don't address them first, have to be addressed first before you can even get to um, all these kind of quote unquote medical things. And then other ways to build kind of your situational awareness is, is there more than one injured patient? It's so easy to run up to one and then again, zone in. Um, it's, it's worth knowing if there's more than one and then God forbid, and then if there is, then you get start talking about triage and that gets a little more complicated, but maybe one's more obviously injured than the other, you know, and we can talk through that later. And then if you kind of have an idea, you don't have to know it right off the top, but it's what is the cause of injury? If it's a fall, then you start thinking, man, this could be virtually anything, but if it's a gunshot, then it's, well, now you're thinking that this, this is probably not a series of things that it could be. It's going to be one or two particular things in, in the backcountry setting as opposed to a battle setting. Um, and then part of the scene safety part of things is just protecting yourself. If you have eye, um, eye protection on to you know prevent from splashes of blood or gloves on to protect from that as well, that's good. Um, and then this is probably one of the most important things is very early on, it's really worth considering how, what level of help or evacuation capability do I need? And as soon as you can figure that out with even a, some level of certainty, get that process started. Cause in the backcountry and in battle, it's like, it's a process, right? And it takes hours for who knows how long it's going to take. And if you wait until several hours in, and it's so easy to get kind of sucked into it and treatment. And then it's been several hours. And it's like, man, I could have had like, you know, I could have had uh, EMS here by now, but now it's going to be another three hours, you know? And so, so thinking very um, proactively about how do I get this, uh, get my buddy out or get myself out or what kind of level of help do I need? Is this just a little cut? Can I pack out the rest of my elk? Or is this, um, you know, I need life lighted out or who knows what it's going to be, but you have to think about that and get that process started as quickly as possible, just because of the time inherent in, you know, uh, transport in the backcountry, I suppose. Reminds me of uh, when Wes fell on that stump, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. We were packing out an elk and a buddy fell and just started screaming. And Oof. like the, I was 200 yards in front of him. And I'm like the very, I took off my pack and I had my inReach strapped to it. And that was the very first thing I did was grab my inReach and then started sprinting back towards him. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah I was totally just, thinking about that right but that, yeah i immediately just thought of it but yeah it's i could see in a scenario where you know you, you didn't think of that yeah you know one thing i'll add to that that situational awareness that i don't actually have on this reference card that um is important is knowing ahead of time if you're going out with other guys or you know anyone else knowing ahead of time 
if they have particular medical issues, i.e., hey, I'm super allergic to bees. So if I get stung, here's my EpiPen and my right side hip pocket. And this is how you use an EpiPen and Benadryl. And, or maybe it's, uh, you know, I've got major heart issues. And if anything happens, I don't know. It was like, uh, maybe you shouldn't be in that country at that point, but you should know <laughs> their kind of overall medical conditions, roughly speaking. And then also their, um, what they use for treatment, which medications they have, where they are. Those are things that, you know, before every, literally before every operation in the going into battle, guys will say like, Hey, like it's all standardized. All of our, um, IFACs are on our right hip. All of our, um, combat pill packs are in our left shoulder pocket, all those kind of things. And then you go through the med rec with someone and you say, this is where my, my, uh, massive bleeding kit is. This is where my airway kit is. And so other people know where your medical stuff is in case they need to access it when you can't, if you're the injured person, for example, you know? Yeah. Especially, yeah. As you mentioned, like it makes me, my son has some allergies, for example. So if he's, if we take him into a new environment or he's like at a birthday party with people he's never been with, right. Like just making them aware of, you know, what his allergies are, where his EpiPen is, that type of thing. Um, made me think of that for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's see, what else was I about to say about it? I would just say like, um, I think I mentioned earlier, of course, this is not battle. And so there's not going to be as many, hopefully, God forbid there's as many like dynamic situations going on, bombs going off, bullets flying, that kind of stuff, which is not necessarily the norm in battle either. But um, but there are ways that you can get what we call polytrauma, multiple trauma from things in that country. And I would say falls are probably your biggest risk there. Um, there's on the PJ Medcast, uh, a lot of PJs in Alaska respond to grizzly maulings. Um, and so guys can get pretty jacked up by grizzlies, obviously. And a lot of, so that's, you know, on the PJ podcast and talk about those a fair amount. And then um, usually like sprains and falls, they did a study in New Zealand on Alpine hunting and they found like a third of the injuries were um, from falls. And about 10% of injuries were like sprains or fractures, kind of like what we call muscular or bony issues. And then only like 2% were from guns and 5% were from knives or sharp blades. And so really, I think your biggest risk or kind of what Steve, you just mentioned is like, you know, your buddy falls on a stump or whatever it was. And it's like, yeah, I mean, every single one, every single person listening to this podcast can picture a time where they either did fall or should have fallen, or it could have been way worse than it was, or, you know has their own personal story about that. So with falls, depending on the height and what you're falling on, like you can have serious, serious issues come up that are, affect multiple systems. So I'd say like, you know, they're it, going in the back country is not a safe thing. Hunting is not um, super dangerous. There's not a ton of injuries with it, but everything that goes into hunting, sharp things, gun things, uh, back country, uh, uneven terrain, uh, breaking down animals, exposure to insects, weather, all that kind of stuff. Like, I think that's, you know, you're putting yourself in a medical risk and I take that risk as often as I possibly can. Cause I love it, but it's nice to have, again, that mental model you can kind of work through in case anything happens. What is, are we at a spot to dive into March then? Is that the next step here? 
It feels like it. How are you feeling? (laughs) No, it's good. It's hard to gauge. Like, I know this is so much info, so I feel, I don't mean to like overload anyone, but, um, no, it's good. So it's, it's, it's good to have. Yeah. So just to recap, March is M for massive bleeding, A for airway, R for respiration or breathing, C for circulation and H for head and hypothermia. And then, as you said, those are in that order for a specific reason, not to make a cute little acronym, but because, you know, number one, massive bleeding is what can kill you most quickly. And then the last one, head and hypothermia, uh, is the least threat of those listed. So that's the big picture of what March is. And then, as you mentioned prior for each one of those, there's kind of like an assessment and a potential treatment. And that's where you know, we can, we can talk briefly or talk for a long time, but I guess let's just go ahead and dive into each of those in particular, and then just talk at first, just kind of briefly about the assessment, the treatment, um, you know, and of course, along the way, maybe that, that particular one will spark some questions from a a backcountry hunting perspective. Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Um, so yeah, we'll start with them. Uh, massive bleeding. And I guess the question here is like, what is massive bleeding or quote unquote life-threatening bleeding? Um, ways that you could recognize if this is amount of bleeding that you should be concerned about, like literally like this needs to be addressed in the next three to six minutes, else you bleed out. These are things like a pulsing bright red blood, meaning pulsing indicating maybe it's coming from a cut artery and that would be Real bad because that can bleed out real fast. So pulsing bright red blood. If your clothing, you can't see the injury, but the clothing is just soaked through with blood or there's blood pooling, like a significant pool of blood on the ground. Um, And then also like it's maybe goes without saying, you can bleed internally in your chest, in your abdomen. Um, Those are places that you can also bleed, but there's, that's really kind of, that gets real sketchy for even trauma surgeons, let alone backcountry hunters. So I would just say the things that you focus on for what is life-threatening bleeding, that's what you got to find and stop like before anything else for massive bleeding is pulsing bright red blood, clothing soaked, blood pulling on the ground. If they're vomiting a bunch of blood and or uh, pooping a bunch of blood, or sometimes when you poop blood, it's like dark, black, oily, um, that's blood. Um, those things are scary and they need to be addressed. Okay. So the external bleeding you can't address. So that's the assessment for treatment for massive bleeding ways that you can treat it. If you, if you have massive bleeding, that's coming from an injury on your arms or legs, you can put a tourniquet on your arms or legs. You can't put a tourniquet on your torso and you can't put a tourniquet on your neck or your head. So if it's on your arms or legs, you can use it tourniquet. And that is the most effective thing for those kind of, um, massive bleeding injuries to arms or legs. Okay. Again, that's a skill in and of itself, um, that we won't go into right now. There's other things I think, um, talk about Curtis again, cause he's such a guy, uh, his, he talked about hemostatic gauze or probably the most common one that we know of is combat gauze. There's a couple other ones too, brands that work in slightly different ways. But they, it's it's basically a gauze, as you can picture it, kind of Z-folded, a little bit smaller than a square toilet paper, probably about two-thirds of that size, and it's Z-folded on itself and vacuum-sealed, a tight little package. But that's it has this series of protein in it that helps stop bleeding, helps your body work its clotting. Um, and so it's 
it's not just gauze that you're holding pressure on and that works because I mean, pressure is one of the best ways to stop bleeding, but it, it's also helping the what we call the clotting cascade or the clotting aspect of your blood that needs to happen. So hemostatic gauze or combat gauze is something you can use as well if you have that in your pack. If you have normal gauze or, you know, honestly, anything, a ripped t-shirt or any sort of clothing, if you hold direct pressure on a wound for three to five minutes, that should like, and this is like very strong, very direct pressure, not just like a general hand over a thing with a t-shirt in between. This is like some point holding down where you know he is injured and bleeding from for three to five minutes. That can be very effective as well. What I will say the time that it's least effective is when you pick your thumb up real quick to look and see if it stopped bleeding yet. That basically resets the clock. So just hold it there for five minutes. Don't poke it. Don't peek at it or anything. Just like hold it there. And then you have direct pressure on there for five minutes and that can stop bleeding as well. And then you can wrap that with a ACE wrap or elastic wrap and then maybe keep that gauze in place. And that can, that can work. If you need to close wounds, I'm trying to remember what Curtis mentioned. I think he said butterfly suture, those kind of bandages that um, you don't, it's not necessarily suture or stitches like a doctor would put in necessarily, but there are bandages that can do pretty well to hold big wounds together um, or super glue honestly does pretty well for a lot of these things to hold them together. Um, we have glorified staplers that we use in the ER. Um, they're actually just staplers with a, uh, they're sterile, you know, and cost way more. But um, so those are things you can do to close wounds. But as far as life-threatening bleeding, tourniquet on arms or legs, uh, combat, or hemostatic guys, um, if you have it to stop that bleeding and you hold direct pressure with that as well, or normal gauze or normal bandage with direct pressure for five minutes without peeking at it and then wrapping that as a pressure dressing is what we call that. This is stepping out of March and potentially like life-threatening massive bleeding, but I'm kind of wondering about a, oh, like a significant cut or puncture that's not life-threatening mm-hmm. um, that needs to be addressed, but let's say it is something where it's potentially, I want to keep hunting for three, four, five days. You know, there's, I've heard of people talking about using like super glue to close stuff up, but then there's risk of like, well, if it's not clean, then infection, et cetera. So I know there's a lot of what ifs and variables and what have you, but like, let's say someone had a a pretty good puncture slash laceration wanted to continue to stay in the back country for a few days, unless yeah. we just recommend that they don't, uh, what should they do? Um, you know, from this big picture and avoiding a lot of what ifs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, and some of those, what ifs, honestly, if we get to pause, if we ever get there, I suppose, uh, <laughs> pause, I mean, antibiotics and wounds, A and W, is antibiotics and wounds. And that's talking about those specific things. How do you recognize infection and how do you know if it's infected and what do you do? Um, But as far as like actually just closing it. So let's say that you've gone through, you know, it's not life threatening. You need to, you want to keep going in. So we'll talk about how do you know if it's infected? When is it too bad or whatever? But um, as far as closing skin up, I would, I mean, you can, you can wash it. And if glue is holding it, once it's dry, of course, the skin will have to be dry to try to glue it up, then do it. Or um, if you do some rough stitches, then you can do that. You know, I would say that um, 
everyone's risk tolerance is different and all the situations are going to be different, but just because you cut yourself, if it's not life, if it's not a life threatening bleed, then yeah, I mean, I've certainly taken that risk myself, you know, okay. and you can close it up with some of those things I mentioned. Butterfly sutures are really good for people who don't want to learn how to stitch. Um, there's uh, again, staples or super glue, but there are ways that you can get that wound closed and keep it closed. Um, you know, scalp uh, lacerations are actually really problematic because they bleed so much. Your scalp has so much blood supply. So a lot of guys will fall and, you know, hit their head and they're, you know, not a concussion, nothing scary about it, but they have this slice on their head. It's just oozing and oozing and oozing. You can lose a lot of blood over hours doing that. Um, so those kind of things need to be addressed, you know, um, again, washing soap and water. And then we'll talk about that in antibiotics and wounds, but Perfect. Uh, yeah. Awesome. So back into to March after massive bleeding is airway. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this is the second thing that can kill you as far as how quickly it can happen. Um, if your airway is blocked, or there's kind of a word that we use, compromised airway, meaning it's not normal and it might become fully blocked. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. So you need to, I have this on the card, it's ask, look, and listen and for a blocked or compromised airway. And so the idea here is, you can assess if someone's airway is going is problematic is potentially going to kill them you know in this order of march if you if you ask them a question and they respond with anything with a normal voice if they have a normal voice and are speaking their airway is fine in that moment it's like you know i can't tell you what will happen in 10 minutes or whatever but in that moment if they're speaking with a normal voice their airway is quote unquote protected so you're okay there you can check that box if they're not doing that, um, for whatever reason, they're not responding to your question or do have an abnormal voice, you look. So we're talking about ask, look, and listen for assessment. You look in the mouth and you're looking for visible objects. Uh, maybe he fell and then a bunch of dirt got in his mouth or something, or um, and you have to get that out. Or um, maybe he's bleeding or vomit. And so there's a liquid or some, you know, whatever that's in the mouth. Um, and so when you... Um, We'll go into treatment in a second, but uh, that's what look means when we're talking about ask, look, and listen. You're looking for things that could be in the mouth that are obstructing that airway, which is a real problem. And then listen. So again, we talked about listening to their voice, but otherwise, as they're breathing, you can listen to someone breathing. And if it sounds high-pitched, that's scary. You're talking about your son with the allergy or an EpiPen. It's like, and we'll talk about that in a second, but if you were having an allergic reaction where it's swelling and closing your throat, that's what, that's what that sounds like is a high pitch breathing. It's what we call strider. It's like a, <laughs> that kind of situation is very, very dangerous. Um, and then, uh, so that's what ask, look, listen means when we're talking about assessing the airway, as far as treatments go for the airway. We, um, if you look in and there's something in there, clear it, get something, get it out of there. Um, I'd say a big caveat with this is don't do a blind finger sweep, meaning, I don't know, I think it's blocked, but I don't see anything. I just want to like, see if there's anything in there and get it out. All you, if that's the case, if you can't see it, all that you could potentially do in that situation is make it worse by pushing the thing further down. And so don't do a blind sweep, but if you see something in there, get it out either with your finger sweep, or maybe that means if it's, you know, liquid, then it's gravity will help you get that stuff out. And so that's a way that you can clear that airway. 
there's also a couple other things kind of positionally you can do. Um, if the, if it seems like their breathing is being compromised by snoring, maybe it's their tongue that's falling in the back of their throat. You can lift their chin up and kind of forward. That's called a, uh, what do we call that? Chin lift, jaw thrust. And so you're basically just thrusting their jaw forward as if you're sticking out your bottom row of teeth really far, right? And that helps clear the airway as long as there's not a physical object in there, you know? And then there's something called the recovery position, which is if they're unconscious, they're basically, and you can't be hands on them again, doing that chin lift or whatever, a way to, you know, if you have to walk away to do something, a way that you can help them keep their airway protected is using gravity on your side. So you put them in the recovery position, which is basically lying on their side and then angled face down. And then, um, their upper leg and arm are bent at 90 degrees, kind of prop them up or tripod them. If you Google search recovery position, it's very easy once you know what you're doing, but um, that's a way that you don't have to be hands-on if someone needs airway protection. There are a couple of um, medical devices, certainly one that a non-medical person could train themselves in and use is called an NPA, nasopharyngeal airway or uh, nose hose. But I would say that's, Kind of like the tourniquet. It's it's not hard to learn, but you have to learn it. And that's a hands-on skill that, you know, maybe YouTube or literally buying one and doing it hands-on will will work. But that that's another way you can protect the airway or treat for airway issues. Um I will say, I guess I kind of already mentioned with severe allergic reactions, people usually know the term anaphylaxis, which is that severe allergic reaction. Um that's kind of the first thing that could kill you in that situation is a swelling airway. And that's where you need that EpiPen. And you, at that point, can treat with Benadryl after that, which is kind of the go-to treatment immediately for those kind of things. And just so people know for EpiPens, this is a little more, but I just see it so often done incorrectly. EpiPens, you just hold, you stick into your leg and you hold it in the leg for 10 seconds. Please don't stick it in and pull it out immediately because then all the medicine shoots out after that into the air. So it's really important with EpiPens. If you ever have it, they're super easy to use. They don't even really hurt. So don't be so scared of them at all, but just hold them in the leg or the, you know, the shoulder, a big meaty part of the body um, for 10 seconds, count to 10, one Mississippi, two Mississippi, et cetera. But that's just kind of a, a thing to know for EpiPens. Not hard to do, just know that. So when I hear like, as we continue on, so there's March, there's massive bleeding. We just talked about airway and then respirations or breathing. Like to me, that A and the R, the airway and the breathing go like so close hand in hand, but in what ways are they different? Yeah, I think, you know, they're probably the easiest way to think about them differentiated is like airway goes from your mouth down to the base of your neck, like your windpipe. And then from there, you're getting into your lungs and that's breathing respiration. So that's maybe the easiest way to kind of just mentally distinguish them. Um, there's, you know, medically speaking, there's other ways, but I would just say airway is literally like from your, the base of your neck up, it's your windpipe and your mouth and your nose. That's your airway. Um, and then breathing, respirations, the R's, respirations, that's, that's your lungs and kind of down in your chest. Okay. So in terms of assessment for respirations or even potentially some scenarios, if anything comes to mind, let's, let's dive into that one. 
Yeah. Um, okay. So for this one, there's a very classic thing that we say, which is look, listen, feel. So airway was ask, look, listen, and you kind of can remember what those things are, but this one is look, listen, feel. Um, and the way to assess for respirations for R is you look first. And so that means like you're looking at, is their chest actually rising and falling? Are they actually breathing, you know, first and foremost, are they, are they actually breathing? Cause you know, your chest rises and falls as you're breathing, even if it's just a little bit. Um, and then also when you're looking, you can look for injuries, um, broken bones, or do you have like some really big bruise on your chest? If you're looking at their skin, you should be technically looking at their skin. Um, so you can see all these things that you're looking for. Um, and then entrance and exit wounds, you know, if you were dealing with firearms, so you can, um, get a gunshot wound to the chest. And that includes the back. When I say chest, that's just your general torso, which is front and back. Um, and so I would say that you're looking for entrance and exit wounds as well. If you're in your situational awareness, you hear a gunshot and you're thinking, okay, maybe someone got shot, go through massive bleeding, go through airway. And now I'm on R I'm looking for entrance and exit wounds. And, uh, as we all know, as hunters, like entrance wounds are not necessarily big and exit wounds are not necessarily big either, although they typically are bigger. And so it's, you know, it's not just a quick glance and you're fine. If you're like, you got to search for these exit wound, entrance and exit wounds. If, if that's a possibility, you know, the, um, if there was a gunshot, for example. Um, so that's the look part of assessment for respiration under look, listen, and feel we'll move to listen and listen is just kind of, you're listening for like rapid, shallow breathing. Shallow just means like <laughs> you know, like it's, it's not just a nice, normal, deeper breath. It's just shallow breathing or rapid, just fast breathing. Like that's not normal unless you're huffing and puffing up a hill. And so it's, you know, if someone's not huffing and puffing up a hill and they're huffing and puffing, then that's not normal. And you got to figure out what's going on. Right. Um, and then feel, which is, uh, you're just feeling for their chest walls, feeling for those broken bones, feeling for the entrance and exit wounds in addition to looking for them. That's what look, listen, and feel means as far as the assessment goes for respiration. It seems to me like with with this one in particular, I know it's the case with all these, but there's so many different potential scenarios of why respiration, um, there may be an issue here. So in terms of treatment, it seems like, man, I'd, like what can you say about treatment without knowing what the actual issue is here? Yeah, it's, it's true. I would, I would say that this is, um, yeah, it does get hard. And, and, you know, there are plenty of times that people are, even in the ER, I'm trying to distinguish, like, is this, is someone having a panic attack and that's why they're, you know, breathing rapidly like this, or is it actually a life-threatening issue that's, you know, going on? And I like, and so you have to, you know, obviously the ER, you have to rule that out first, but there are so many things that can kind of be complicated or not super clear. And that's just, you know, that's just reality in life. And it's not necessarily going to be simple, but at least you kind of have a mental model for it. So I agree. It's, it's not an easy distinguishing thing. I would say, it's real easy if you see a hole in their chest and their back. It's like, oh, this is bad. It's probably a breathing problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. But other than that, it doesn't get so easy. Or if you know they fell and they've got this big bruising or they've got some broken ribs, then you know you can tell there's probably some breathing issues. Um, 
like let, let's take that scenario um there's a fall pretty serious fall potentially say impact on some rocks or what have you yeah. you get to a hunting partner trouble breathing you do notice some severe bruising i mean clearly that's a hit the button <laughs> situation yeah. uh, for in reach but beyond waiting for help like let's take that scenario what are some steps to take you know and until help arrives in that specific scenario sure i would say first make sure that there aren't any holes to the chest um let's assume that you know the the ribs aren't um didn't well i would just say let's make sure like you don't have any broken skin let's call it that if you have broken skin, you know, maybe you fell on a sharp rock and it literally punctured a hole into the chest wall. You have to cover any holes. Entrance and exit wounds just have to be covered. Literally, we call them chest seals, but they're, you're just sealing up those holes with this really adhesive thing or whatever you can use. I think the classic is like the candy bar wrapper with duct tape on all sides or whatever it's going to be. But you have to get those holes covered so there's no more outside air that can get inside that chest. Um, so not, not only covered, but covered with something that's not breathable preferably yeah exactly a t-shirt yeah <laughs> no ex yeah 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 i'm sorry for that yeah it has to be a totally right about that not breathable it's not letting any air into the chest because that can cause worsening okay. so grab your tent and cut out cut a chunk out of the rain fly and duct tape that on around the skin there you go yeah i think that's good um and yeah um that's a way to do it um the there are other things that are definitely medical skills that you wouldn't necessarily be able to do. So these are, I guess, uh, so I won't even go into those, honestly. Um, what can happen with, if you break ribs on the fall, and let's assume you don't have any holes in the chest wall, um, it is extremely painful for honestly, like six to eight weeks. <laughs> so <laughs> breathing deeply with broken ribs is extremely painful. And there's actually not much that we even do in a hospital setting if they're just broken and not, you know, um, there's a bunch of caveats to that, obviously. But sometimes guys will just have some broken ribs and it's like, yeah, I'm sorry, man. Like work, focus on taking deep breaths, literally just like focus on deep inhale. I think they call that square breathing four seconds in four seconds, hold four seconds out, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Focus on those deep breaths because that way, um, even though it's painful, it helps keep your lungs kind of filled with air in a way that if you were just doing really shapid, uh, sorry, shallow, rapid breaths, it wouldn't keep your lungs filled with air in the same way. And then I would say if they stop breathing, and it's not an airway issue because you already ruled that out going through March, if they stop breathing, then you can get into the rescue breast world. That's kind of the other thing you can do as a treatment, non-medical person treating, breathing. If they stop breathing, you can help them breathe. This is the classic mouth to mouth. It's just a breath every five seconds. And you just try to do, you pinch their nose. So all the air is going in and not back out the nose. And you try to like tilt their chin back and breathe to the point where you can see their chest rising when you breathe in. Um, that's a real, real bad situation that you don't want to be in. And I, hope you never would be, but that's kind of the other thing you can do as a treatment for respirations. Should they stop breathing? Okay. That was helpful. Thank you. Um, <laughs> depressing, I, but helpful. <laughs> I think I, I think I did say this at the beginning, but I'm not positive. 
any of these injuries, March injuries, M-A-R-C-H, if you have these things, with possibly the exception of a mild hypothermia, any of the other ones, any March injury is life-threatening and needs urgent evacuation, okay? So this isn't like, oh yeah, I had massive bleeding, but then I put the tourniquet on, or then I stopped it with combat gauze or normal gauze with a pressure dressing, and now I'm good. It's like, no, man, like that's, if you had life-threatening bleeding, uh, or massive bleeding, you need to get to medical help as fast as possible. And the same is true for all these other March injuries. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I just can't remember if I said that earlier. No. Yeah. Um, yeah. Makes sense. Cause a lot of guys, yeah, we were all want to be tough and Oh, I'm fine. You know? And yeah. It's just give help. <laughs> yeah. I actually haven't listened to your article on like what happens when you push the inReach with the SOS? Uh-huh. <laughs> and, uh, I've actually I've been meaning to, and I, I haven't yet. But um, I could you could find out. But that would be the time to find out what happens. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So we've done massive bleeding, airway, respiration, and now we're on C for circulation. Yeah, circulation basically. That means, you know, your blood is circulating through your body. So that's where that word comes from. But basically what you're doing for this one is you're finding, you're, you're finding and treating shock. And shock is a general term that we use. It was like, I saw a horror movie and I was shocked or something like that. But shock is when your vital organs are not getting enough blood flow. Okay. So that's what shock in this context and what I mean by circulation is for C, the letter circulation, or C for circulation, you're just finding and treating shock. And so this, I will tell you that this is one of those things very similar to respiration, maybe even a little bit more complicated as far as sussing out, like, um, is this shock that I'm dealing with um, in the in the sense that we're talking about, vital organs aren't getting enough blood, but you can imagine like, if your brain isn't getting enough blood, you'd probably be confused or not thinking clearly. Um, if your um, heart isn't getting enough blood or certain organs aren't getting enough blood, your butt, your heart is going to be pumping like super fast. You Like your pulses are going to be, um, if you're feeling someone's pulse in their neck or their wrist, super fast, maybe even really uh, like weak, like you can barely even feel it. Um, and then their skin is another way you can kind of assess. And again, it's, it's not, it's complicated, but with skin, it's like if they're extremely sweaty and appropriately so, um, or if their skin even more so is cool, clammy, gray, if they, you know, kind of talk about losing your color drains from your face. If you're, if you're showing that, not just in your face, but elsewhere, like that could be a sign that you um, are in shock. The, the most obvious part probably to assess for this is if you've lost a lot of blood. So again, that would go back to massive bleeding, but you know, if you have an M injury, a massive bleeding injury, you can be sure that you're going to be dealing with a C injury down the road because, but there's other reasons to go into shock that aren't just blood loss, but those are ways to assess for it. Again, um, confusion, their pulses are kind of rapid or weak, maybe not even present. And then their skin, cool, clammy, pale gray, or extremely overly sweaty for some reason. And then uh, nausea and thirst. So if they're like kind of, um, those are, that could be like your intestines aren't getting enough blood flow. So you feel nauseous or um, thirst can be just your brain is trying to tell your body you need more fluid. So 
again, it, I admit it's, it's fairly complicated, but those are kind of ways that you can assess this. And when you're getting down to C, you have a little bit, we're talking about, you know, in the hour range, if not three to six hours. So you have a little bit more time to reference the card and say like, okay, am I dealing with this? Let me check off these symptoms and see if this is what's going on. You know, you can also yeah. be nauseous because your meal was bad or those kind of things. So yeah, it has to be all in context and it's, it's tough to gauge. I admit that. Yeah. But it's helpful to me to think through combining these different symptoms that you mentioned, like, as you said, like nauseous alone, isn't the thing, but it's like, okay, you start to mix some nausea with um, this clamminess that extends beyond just, you know, the face and like, some paleness and grayness outside of that and sweat like you start to piece together these different systems uh or sorry symptoms and then it lets you know like okay maybe we're falling into this quote-unquote march territory we need to push the button that is a great way to say that yeah just combining those symptoms together maybe you otherwise maybe wouldn't have drawn that connection he's nauseous and his skin is gray you know it's like Mm -hmm. Oh, those can actually be related things and that can be shock, you know? So that's, that's a really good point. That's a, I like that you said that. Um, as far as treatment for that goes, um, first and foremost, you should have taken care of M at the beginning, but make sure they're not having any more blood loss, even a little bit of blood loss. At this point, if you're going into shock or you think you might be going into shock, every little bit of blood counts. So don't let them be losing, you know, slowly oozing through their cut or whatever it's going to be. Um, you lay them down and you get their feet. This is a, I think a lot of people know about this. You get their feet above the level of their heart. And the idea of that is gravity is going to pull the blood from your legs um, down towards your core and towards your heart. And that's where all your vital organs are, is down lower than your legs. Or I'm sorry, I don't know if I said that right. If you're laying down, it'll be lower than your legs. If your legs are <laughs> But you want all your vital organs to be getting blood, right? Because that's what shock is. Your vital organs aren't getting enough blood. So you want your vitals to be getting that blood that would otherwise maybe be pulling in your legs if you were standing up. Right. So um, that's probably one of the biggest things you can do. Additionally, um, drinking fluids. And also I think a lot of guys are carrying um, like electrolyte mixes. Uh, I forget. There's a couple different brands. Uh, I forget which one I even have right now, but it doesn't really matter. It's if you're drinking fluids, water is great. Water with electrolytes is even better. I assume you're not carrying extra blood with you, but if you were carrying extra blood, that'd be <laughs> for it. Um, but in this situation, because their vitals aren't getting enough blood flow, there's their intestines, their stomach and their intestines can't handle a lot of food or water at a time. So that's when they talk about like small sips and just consistent though. So you're really like, you're not chugging a liter because you'll probably just end up throwing that all out because your intestines can't handle it right now, but you're taking small sips every two minutes and you're reminding them, Hey, you know, the alarm went off. It's been two minutes. Take another, you know, another sip. That kind of thing. Um, water and electrolytes, fluid and electrolytes can really help. Um, keeping them warm is extremely important here, and we'll talk about that more in hypothermia. But that's part of treatment for circulation is keeping them warm. And then there's also kind of a caveat here. We talked about anaphylaxis, severe allergic reaction. Um, anaphylaxis can cause shock um it's kind of like if you were bleeding out you don't have enough blood in your in your body with with this allergic reaction basically all of your uh arteries and veins dilate like crazy they get really big and so functionally speaking the amount of space that that 
that your normal amount of blood has to fill all these arteries and veins is much less because the because the the diameter of these uh, uh, arteries and veins is so much bigger, and so your body interprets that as shock because it's the blood's not getting everywhere it needs to because your your vasodilator or your arteries and veins are blown up, right? And so it's kind of you're not necessarily lost blood, but you react very similar. You can go into shock. And of course, treatment for that is the EpiPen and the Benadryl. Um, and then um, you can repeat those dosings if you had more than one EpiPen, for example. Um, but then you're also just doing the other treatments like we talked about. Um, so I'll go through those again, making sure uh, they're not bleeding anymore, laying down, keeping the legs above the heart, drinking fluids, electrolytes, kind of small sips, um, and then keeping them warm. Last one. Last one, we're almost there. Head and hypothermia. It's kind of cheating though, because it's two in one. I always <laughs> thought that was kind of a dirty trick. For March, it's like H is head and hypothermia. It's like, dang, I thought I was almost done. So head, this is basically, you've probably heard about TBIs. We talk about TBIs with you know concussions and uh, football. It's kind of part of our national lingo at this point. TBI, head injury, traumatic brain injury is what that is. Um, so you're basically trying to figure out if that happened. And with falls, that is obviously and certainly a real possibility. And then also um, hypothermia, which I think everyone knows is just low. They're just too cold. Their, their internal body temperature is cold. You know, um, We're supposed to be 98.6 degrees inside. And it doesn't matter what it is. If, they, if that inside gets too cold, that's hypothermia, right? To whatever extent it is. So first, in, I'll just go through TBI. TBI is extremely, your brain is like, one of the final frontiers in this universe. And uh, it is extremely difficult to treat your brain. I would just say this, um, you can assess for TBI if they're, everyone's probably interacted with or had a concussion, had interacted with someone with a concussion or otherwise, that's considered a, what we call a mild TBI. That's, that's not necessarily a big deal. You just don't want another one in the next 24 hours, like do everything you can to prevent that. However, if they are unconscious, or confused, or were unconscious for 30 to 60 seconds or anything like that, and there's a mechanism for it, meaning they fell or something happened that could have caused a head injury, that's a TBI, mild, moderate, severe, I'm not sure yet, but that's not good. Um, and that's a real, because because you don't know how bad it was, that's a real problem. Um, as far as treatment for TBI goes, it's really, um, Again, hard to do anything in the backcountry. What I would say is if it's a pretty significant, uh, that's not even really a fair thing to say. I would say the most you can do is treat the March, the rest of the March injuries as best as possible. Again, you want your circulation to be dialed. You want all these other things to be as perfect as possible to help your brain out. Um, and they will help your brain out for a variety of reasons. Um, and then also if they're unconscious, if you just keep their head up, kind of up at an angle, we call it 30 degrees. I don't know. That might be like, you know, leaning against a ruck is a great way to do that. So they're just, you know, sitting their legs out in front of them. They're sitting on the ground and they're propped up against their ruck. So their head's at 30 degrees above their body. That's something you can do. But honestly, what you want to do is just make sure they're not having any other injuries. Their march is taken care of treatment wise and then get them out of there. So that's head. That's the H for head. And then there's the H for hypothermia, you know, cold body temperature. Assessment for there, I think we've all been cold. <laughs> um, the question is like, how cold is too cold, right? Um, and I, you know, without 
doing a, uh, internal body temperature check, then it's hard to know how cold is too cold. But I'd say if they're shivering, particularly if they're wet and shivering a cold, wet, or I'm sorry, a wet kind of cold is obviously significant comparative to the dry cold, but if they're cold, shivering and wet, and then if they're confused, um, again, their brain, uh, can demonstrate confusion as a result of being too cold. That's a really big sign. If it's like nothing else is wrong with you, you didn't fall, you didn't hit your head, but you're confused. You're not thinking straight. That's a real problem for hypothermia. Like that's major. Um, and then you can also get, um, I'd say this is a really big point that maybe people don't realize if someone has had a serious injury and they're demonstrating signs of shock or they had massive bleeding, they lost a lot of blood. You can assume that they will get hypothermic, very cold, even if it's a hot day out, even in 95 degrees, patients who have had serious injuries, um, particularly M injuries or C injuries can can have major hypothermia, which is just, you just wouldn't think it because you're, you know, you're in a t-shirt and shorts and you're just sweating, you know, but for injured patients, it's just extremely hard to control your body temperature and it can be really problematic. So I think we all kind of, and this audience know very well how to treat hypothermia because you're just, we do so much to stay warm anyway, but I'll go through the treatments for it. Um, these are things like getting anything wet off of them. If they're wet, if there's just no way to get them warm enough for sure. So if you can get the wet clothing off of them, dry clothes, layers as much as possible, insulate them from the ground, you know, sleeping pad is great for that, but don't let them just sit on a, on a rock if they're dealing with that, because, you know, you can transmit heat right through there um, or lose heat right through there, I guess. Things like putting on a winter cap, that's kind of a, your head loses a lot of heat because again, you have so much blood flow there. Um, so if you can keep that heat in wearing a winter cap at 95 degrees, maybe one of the best ways to keep that patient, that guy warm and then making sure they're not losing any more blood and then warm fluids. If you take in, you know, heat up some broth or heat up some, even just heat up the, um, electrolyte drink, like that's a way to keep, or water, that's a way to keep your, your body warm as well. And then I, I tend to use hand warmers, um, or toe warmers. And if you put those things in the, in the groin, um, or kind of in those junctional areas, the, the areas where your arms and legs come into your body. So your armpits, your groin, your neck, there's a lot of blood flow there and a lot of big vessels. And so if you can get heating packs or warm areas there, then that will help warm up the blood that's going to the rest of their body. So those are ways to treat hypothermia. I would say a couple caveats with that. Um, it is way easier to prevent hypothermia. I think we all kind of naturally know this. Once you get so cold that it's like really hard to come back from. And um, so preventing hypothermia is probably the most important way to treat it, honestly. So it doesn't become a problem ahead of time. Knowing that a seriously injured patient will probably develop it is a way to keep an eye on that. And then, um, oh yeah, if you have bleeding issues, hypothermia totally impacts the way your body can clot blood, which is a real problem. So if there's any bleeding issues, you have to be able to keep them warm because otherwise they won't be able to clot their own blood in a way that is very problematic. Helpful. Dang. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> um, That's all like great information. I mean, just, yeah. 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 So we didn't, 
we didn't get the pause um yeah i i almost don't want to go through it for two reasons one is i don't want to keep you all day you've been gracious with your time partially though i want to almost force people if they will if they're remotely interested to actually go and visit the link in the show description and get this guide and hopefully print it and put it in their pack so i want there to be like a little bit of you can get more if you go here type thing because <laughs> i think the hook. I love yeah it. there's the hook but it. I also don't want to like force you to completely ignore it. So is there anything in pause that you absolutely want to say we need to get in this conversation? Oh, good question. Um, no, honestly, the pause is just treatments really. It's not like there's a injuries pauses. Um, it's different treatments that you can do for much less severe things in that order, of course. But, um, March is the ones, those are the life-threatening injuries that you need to know assessment and treatment for. And again, if if you have a mental model that works for you, Curtis doesn't need March pause. <laughs> I can tell you that. But um, but if you don't have one, maybe this this could be your uh your thing for a while. Also, I would say if you print out the guide and throw it in your pack, you better look at it first. Otherwise, you're just gonna be like, I don't know what's going on. But yeah, I think yeah. pause is not nearly as important as March, but pause. There are good things in there. Yeah. What I what I'm planning to do, and this is just me, but one is this conversation has informed what I think what I can take away from the quick reference guide. Cause like you said, if I just see the quick reference guide without the context of this conversation, it would not be nearly as helpful. Um, but two, I have one of our uh, we sell an accessory called a stash pocket. And I essentially keep a stash pocket is for lack of a better term, my first aid kit. There's some other repair stuff in there too, but I often go through that uh and at some level but first before each major trip just to make sure i didn't like forget to replenish something or what have you and my hope would be that like in the future if i have this card in there laminated i'll at least take like a few minutes to like look over it you know to stay a little bit quote unquote fresh Um, yeah so that's i think what i'm planning to do so maybe that'll be helpful for other folks in the future as well but This has been great, Jesse. Thank you for sharing all the time. We're going to, again, have links to this quick reference guide and I think some other resources um, at that link that I mentioned in the show description that people can go get and all that's just free. So thank you for your generosity and your time in this conversation, as well as letting us share all this with, you know, everyone listening. Uh, Is there anything else to wrap things up you want to share? No, I, I really do virtually everything I know about hunting comes from you guys. So I really do appreciate what you're doing. And uh, I don't know. I think you guys are doing great. All right. Well, that is a wrap guys. Don't forget to go to the link in the show description to get that quick reference guide, some suggestions on maybe how you can better prepare and equip your first aid kit. Again, what you have is only as good as the knowledge of how you can apply it. Um, So go ahead and check that out. There's a lot of good information at that link. And then also while you're heading over you can go to xamontgear.com forward slash podcast. We have a giveaway going on right now in the month of August, 2023. You can learn more about that on that same page. You can get all previous episodes. You can search by keyword, browse by topic and more. Again, the link for the giveaway in the podcast is just xamontgear.com forward slash podcast. The link for the resources, medical first aid, quick reference guide for March and pause that we mentioned throughout the show. Again, link in the show description for that as well. 
go check all that out. And finally, if you have any questions for us, reach out anytime. Email is podcast at exomountaingear.com. We'd love to hear from you, whether that is a question, topic, suggestion, or even just to let us know how your hunts go this fall. Love to hear from you. Finally, if you haven't yet, hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically. And we'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.